Have you ever had a part of your day that you thought was gonna be pretty routine just go horrifically off the rails? My first hospital visit went that way. And I'm gonna tell you up front uh, that I have permission to tell the story, but that the names will die with me. I went into MGH because the church had received a call that someone had run into a hiccup during their colonoscopy, and I didn't ask very many more questions, perhaps because I was alarmed at hearing the words hiccup and colonoscopy so close together. But I was told that this gentleman uh, had uh, appreciated church visits in the past where someone had just come and read scripture. I was told that he would probably be asleep, but that if he wasn't, he had seemed in good spirits. And so I went into the room expecting all three of those things and imagine my surprise when he was awake, not in good spirits, and not terribly interested in the scripture. <laughs> he'd been going through a season unbeknownst to me or any of those at the church because he'd only told his family. He'd been going through a series of health issues over a season of months. And the test that morning had turned up some more health issues that had caused them to think that he was gonna be in the hospital for a little bit longer because he might need surgery. And so I walked into the room and asked him if he needed anything. And he pointed to the wall and he said, yeah, could you get me the defibrillator? And so I started walking toward the defibrillator because I'm slow with my Bible up under my arm. And I said, um, what do you need it for? And he said, it depends on what verse you're about to read me. Uh, and summoning all my David Vardaman energy, I said, tell me more about that. And, and he said, well, if you read the verse about God working all things together for the good, the defibrillator's for you. He said, I've been going through a season of health challenges over the past several months. I've been in church for a long time. I've read the scripture. I know the stories. I've seen people healed and delivered and deeply impacted by God's action in their life in a way that shifts their story. So their after is better than their before. Things clean up. Things are tidy. Things are resolved. But I'm leafing through the scripture in this season of my life, not just looking for God, but to see if my name has been left off his roster, wondering if there are people in Scripture that have a deep connection with God, but who don't have a tidy ending, because my ending may come soon, and it seems to me anything but tidy. So I'm left in a season, he said, where I'm caught in the gap between the God that I expected and the one that's actually shown up. What do you do when you're caught in the gap between the God that you expected and the God that actually shows up? I think that's where we may be in Exodus chapter two. Last week, we talked about Joseph, who was a Hebrew who made himself valuable to the Egyptians. He rose to a high rank of prominence and helped them achieve a season of prosperity. And when they went through a season of drought, pivoted their strategy so that they would be safe. And so the Pharaoh then loved the Hebrews by virtue of them being Joseph's people. But then the text for today says that there came a new Pharaoh who wasn't devoted to Joseph and he felt threatened by the Hebrews even though they were his slaves. And so he sort of tries everything to reduce the numbers of the Hebrews that could rise up against him. He gives them more work in the hopes that when they go home, they'll be too tired to make more babies. We know that that doesn't happen to people. 
Then he orders the midwives to kill the Hebrew boys, and they refuse. And so in sort of a last-ditch attempt, Pharaoh goes to the public, asking them to drown Hebrew baby boys in the Nile. And under this situation, Moses' mother conceives and brings a son. When the empire is bent on the destruction of your child, what do you do? We know that no mother worth her salt would drown her own kid in the Nile. We know that no mother who has any affection for her child would even stand by and watch. So Moses' mother is led here to a desperate act of resistance because really it's the only thing she could do. We don't know how many Hebrew women she knows who have screamed in agony as their child has been ripped from them and drowned. We don't know how many stories she's heard of Egyptian masters who have beaten mothers within an inch of their life because they kept their own child. We don't know. All we know is that here we have a window in the character of a woman who believes with this quiet act of resistance that doing what is right for love's sake is always worth the risk. But hiding a baby is only sustainable for so long. They don't tend to be very quiet. And so as Moses gets a little bigger, the text says that she has to choose either to keep him and let him die with her or give him up and hope that there's somebody downstream who has a heart who can give her child a life that she simply couldn't. So she fixes up a basket to be as waterproof as possible and heads down to the riverbank and releases it. And her daughter, Moses' sister, follows along until Moses' basket stops right near the daughter, their daughter of Pharaoh. I think we can breathe a little bit easier at this point because we've already seen the video and we know how this turns out. But I can't imagine being here Moses' sister. Imagine finding out that your mother is going to have a baby and praying for months that it would be a girl so that the person could be added to your family without any tragedy. Then imagine for months praying every night that somehow your brother will be able to stay in your home. Then imagine that falling through and your mother going to the riverbank hoping that some other family will be able to give your child the life that you couldn't. Then imagine following that child down the river until the basket nestles in the reeds by the very person whose father has ordered your brother dead. Egyptians are absolute masters over their slaves. Not one of them is trusted. They can beat Hebrews when they want, kill them when they want, dispose of them when they want. And this just isn't any Egyptian. This is an Egyptian from the house of the murderous tyrant who let other Hebrew babies die and did more than that, but ordered it. And the basket holding your baby brother finds its way into the hands of somebody from that family. How breathless would you be? How angry at God because of the series of ways he's let you down? Because you know that your brother couldn't possibly survive in the very house of the person who has ordered him killed. And yet the text takes special care to mention that when Pharaoh's daughter looked at Moses, she knew he was a Hebrew baby. And she felt compassion for him. That's not supposed to happen. 
the people hearing of these events or reading the text had a pretty clear definition of who is in and out when it comes to the people of God. And they know that in the narrative so far of God's people, Egyptians don't cooperate with God's purposes. They're bent on reading and hearing this person as the enemy. And yet the person that God chooses to be a vehicle of deliverance in this moment is the person that every other hearer would read as an opponent. God uses the open heart of an adversary to bring about new possibilities for a person God has sent. Be careful when you think you know who's included in God's work. Be careful before you make categories around people who God absolutely could not use because it's possible, by which I mean it's absolutely true, that God has a more expansive imagination for his roster than you do. So Pharaoh's daughter holds the baby and Moses' sister comes up and proposes an arrangement in which Moses' mother gets paid to nurse her own child. There were many amens in the first hour. We don't know how much of this was set up in advance. We're not sure if Moses' mother and, her and, and his sister had some arrangement before or if Moses' sister was just incredibly clever in the moment. But what we do know is that amidst all these events, God isn't mentioned once. Can you feel the weight of that? We can approach this story, I think, because we can flip a few pages over in Exodus and see how it ends. We see that the very river that was supposed to be the vehicle of Moses' death becomes the vehicle of deliverance. We can look back in Genesis and see that, again, as in Noah's case, God uses a vessel on the water to bring his deliverer into a setting that cultivates new life. We know that Moses' household that ends up raising him was the very one that ordered him dead. They end up raising the person who will take them out from the inside. We can flip a few pages over in Exodus and see Moses' encounters with God, the burning bush and staffs and snakes and pillars of fire and seas parted. God worked all things together for the good. But Moses' mother didn't know it. She went to the riverbank, assuming that this would be her last goodbye to her son. And there's no record that God ever spoke to her, ever reassured her, ever gave her a sense of his purposes for this child or a vision of what his future would be like. God is the only main character in this passage whose participation is deeply unsatisfactory. In a very real sense, all we have here is a mother on the riverbank who's done her best to be faithful to God in the most desperate circumstances and has no reassurance from God that anything that she's actually done will work. Not many of us will face this. I don't think any of us will in the same way. And yet it seems like there comes a point in all of our lives where uh, our spiritual life feels strangely unspiritual where we come up against something bigger than us and we feel the crushing weight of disappointment when it feels like in the very moment that God would be interested in helping, he seems absent. I wanna call that a riverbank moment. 
And I wanna give you a few characteristics of that kind of moment so that you can recognize it when you bump up against it in your own life, because I'm sure you already have. One, life seems secular. There's nothing that stamps your struggles with a spiritual note. It's just a struggle for a better life and against sort of the impersonal force of circumstance. Two, life seems harsh. There's an unfeeling and callous nature to what life is dealing you. One disappointment after another, one impossible choice after another, one unyielding person after another. You come to the riverbank hoping for mercy in the water because you certainly aren't finding it from heaven. Three, life gives impossible choices. It seems no matter what you choose, it'll be a terrible disappointment. Give in, you lose. Struggle against the circumstances, you lose. Resist the people in charge, you lose. Obey, you lose. Refuse, you lose. When you're stuck between the unthinkable and the impossible, you're on the riverbank. Four, life breaks your heart through love. Over time, there are things that our hearts grow attached to, our deepest affections. That's where loss comes from, after all, right? If you didn't love anything, you couldn't lose it. It wouldn't hurt. Riverbank moments are those seasons where the load-bearing loves in our lives feel swept away. Dreams, people, chances, parts of our identity that we thought were going to happen or going to be solid forever suddenly washed away. Five, life doesn't reveal God's work. Sometimes it seems in our life that God's hand sort of traces through our circumstances in a way that's appreciable. We know it's been God. Then there are riverbank moments when God seems silent, God seems absent, or at worst, God seems just uninterested. I think a lot of us have been through a riverbank moment or are going to have one just around the bend. And yet, because I've talked to a lot of you, I know that a lot of you are there right now wondering if God can be trusted with a thing that's most precious to you because it feels to you like it's headed somewhere you didn't expect. Maybe the word of the Lord for you in Exodus chapter two is that sometimes God's best work is done by people who in the absence of a fresh word from the Lord simply do what's right until they hear him again. Moses' mother reminds us that God holds space in his work for people who don't know what God's up to. She just didn't. I think there has to be space somewhere in a faithful life, doesn't there, for us to honestly express our feelings of disappointment toward God, while we also remember that God has more than our lives in mind. When I've read this text in the past, I've used some familiar lenses that are easier for me. So I can read this as a text about Moses, or a text about Pharaoh, or a text even about Moses' sister or mother, or a text about how a minority in a majority culture can sort of participate in acts of quiet resistance even when the empire is bent on their destruction. Those are familiar lenses to me. But this is also, and maybe mostly, a text about God, which is why it's so deeply troubling to me because this text runs very counter to the way that I prefer to perceive God. I like to perceive God as someone who's interested in giving his children good gifts, and interested in seeing us inculcate joy and peace and love and openness and attentiveness to the Spirit's voice. And yet this passage reminds me that while those are true things, noble things, hopeful things, sometimes God has priorities that we simply don't. 
Moses' mother played an incredibly important part in this rescue plan, but other than nursing her kid, we don't know whether or not she got to participate in raising her son. We do know that she went back to living under a murderous tyrant in a society bent on her people's destruction. What we don't know is if she ever got a glimpse into who it was that she, whose life she made possible. We're in a sermon series about sudden joyous turns. Can you tell from today? <laughs> uh, talking about how God's interaction with people makes possibilities alive in their life that they otherwise could not have imagined. And yet we're faced in this text with the harsh reality that this joyful turn came intermingled with this woman's sorrow. She never got to take her baby home, ever. She was one of the most important players in God's plan of redemption, and yet she didn't taste the fruit of her work. She wouldn't have felt in her day as though God was working all things for her good because God's priorities were too unclear, God's work too hidden, God's goal too far in the future for her to see it. The fulfillment came not a year later, but 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years after she did what was right for love's sake because God didn't just have her life in mind, but the nations. God's priorities are always broader than our moment. He has a much longer game to play than we do. In her lifetime, she never knew that what she sent downstream opened up the way toward deliverance and justice and healing and liberation, and yet we know it. And we can see how her faithfulness and her generation rippled out through the generations until there was another baby who was born whose name was Jesus, who was hidden by his parents, whose destruction was ordered, and who lived and died and rose again and is even now knitting together all the promises of God that it takes more than one generation to fulfill. Church, if you find yourself in a season where you're being faithful even when you don't see the promise being fulfilled, you are still in the game. In God's voice and in his silence, in our joy and in our sorrow, in our work, and in our prayer, there comes a time when all we can do is trust that God is capable of multiplying in ways we cannot see the actions of ordinary people who just do what's right. If you find yourself in that space, in agony on the riverbank, in the gap between the God you thought would show up and the God who has shown up, I think there are a few things we can learn from Moses' mother in that space. The first is that we can find a way to, do, to avoid doing what's wrong. Sometimes the best right thing we can do is refuse to do the wrong thing. Life seems to be bringing you to a moment where it feels like it's your only option. Refuse, insist that you find another way. Don't do the wrong thing. Two, keep giving more time to act. Don't fall into the temptation of believing that if God wanted to act, he would have done so already. She could have felt that when she gave birth to a boy, at one week or two weeks or three weeks or four weeks, she stretched her obedience out as far as she possibly could to give God some more time and space to act. Three, put yourself in a position for God to work. Weave the basket that'll float your hope a few days longer. Place the basket of your hope in a place where good people with compassion are in a position to intervene. Position an ally close to the conversation where a word can be said on your behalf. God may remain silent, but it doesn't mean you have to be. 
Four, while you wait, let your breathing become a prayer. There comes a point, I think, in any riverbank moment where we find ourselves wanting to give up if all you have is the mustard seed of not giving up, of breathing and living another day. God shapes that breath into a prayer and turns that mustard seed of hope into enough. Five, adjust your expectations to what God provides. I think this may be the hardest part of it all because we're raised with true ideas about God bringing hope and wholeness and yet often uncertain of how that can be true when the God that shows up seems to allow so many things that we thought he'd be interested in preventing. When the sudden joyous turn comes intermingled with sorrow, we'll be tempted to give in to our feelings of disappointment because God didn't do what we expected. In other words, we'll harbor for years resentment that God didn't keep promises he never made. God's probably not trying to disappoint us. He's just being himself in a way that runs counter to our expectations. So much of our life with God, I think, comes down to being able to receive him on his own terms and invite him into our process of exploring the gap between the God that we expected and the God who is. A couple months ago, I met the family of Mrs. Johnson, Mrs. Johnson was a stay-at-home mom for years uh, who saw her vocation not only as discipling her own children, but being a place that was open for the community. And so gradually, as kids started to find this out, she had to set a few more place settings out for each meal because they knew you could get a warm meal at Mrs. Johnson's house, a cold popsicle, and a deep prayer. And year over year, her house became sort of a magnet for their community as people from around found her house to be a front porch for them, a place where they could be heard and known and loved. And then when her kids were grown, she ended up becoming a reading teacher and seeing things in children that those children never saw in themselves, praying after school with them, showing up during divorce hearings in their families, being present. When, when she died, her impact, people thought, was only about a quarter mile wide. The house and the school, and the neighborhood intermingled. We're about a quarter mile. But people came from that quarter mile, and then that city, and then that county, and then that state. When she died at her funeral, 12 families flew in from around the world to say how Mrs. Johnson had been for them, the body and the blood of Christ, a reminder that God is faithful. And so it was a surprise when her children found her journals and found that God hadn't spoken to her for years. This is what one journal read. Teaching is a long slog and parenting is a long slog and you don't know if you're doing a good job at either until the kids are all grown up. But God, if you can't give me results, I wish you'd at least give me your voice. When I pray lately, I hear nothing. Why are you so far away when I want you so badly to be near? Sometimes I want to walk away from you, God, but where would I go? I may pray and not sense an answer, but if I never heard from you again, God, the life of Jesus would be enough to live on. There is in his life and his words enough grace and peace and joy and laughter that I can't help but give it away. So until I hear from you again, God, I'll do what's in front of me in Jesus' name. 
and trust that maybe behind the scenes you'll make it all work out even if I don't see it. Until then, I'll just keep going. Church, that's the kind of person that God is searching the earth for. People who hear from the Spirit, but who in between have the courage to do the right thing right in front of them, trusting that God is able to carry even the most small, quiet acts of obedience and resistance and give them a life of their own. How is God calling you today, church, to be faithful with something that only he could carry downstream? In a moment, we're gonna come to the table for communion. And so I'm gonna invite those prepared to serve to present themselves at their stations. And we're reminded by this sacrament that we're nourished by the body and the blood of Christ who knew what it was to hear from God and knew what it was to feel abandoned by God, who laughed in unspeakable joy and wept in acceptance of God's unpleasant will, and who even now ties together every act of faithfulness into the tapestry of God's work for the nations. That is the earthy and the raw and the unvarnished work of God, church, to turn ordinary things into vehicles for grace.